You're listening to episode 88 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And we're recording this on the 17th of April 2020 here in Norwich. Now, I should warn people if you hear any strange noises in the background of this recording. It's not just me. No, it's not Steph or me. It's the guy next door who is doing some gardening. This is one of the uh, many challenges of working from home at the moment. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, having said that, the uh, the interview we've got coming up today was recorded at Dragon Hall, and Dragon Hall has its own fair share of noise issues. I think we've discovered that actually recording from Dragon Hall is probably even trickier. Yes. Because it's just, for such a large building with so many rooms, there's just an awful lot of creaks and croaks and outside traffic. and Very hard to soundproof uh, a 16th century medieval building. <laughs> It is. Can't put up too many false walls. No. In fact, I think if we tried to soundproof it, we would get arrested. I think we'll have to uh, maybe buy a duvet, a pair of duvets, and we'll have to sit under the duvets and record in Dragon Hall. Yep. Yep. That sounds good. I think that's good. the way forward. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the professional way to do it. So what have we got on the show today, Steph? So uh, on this episode, we've got our programme manager, Laura Stimpson, who leads on our early career awards. So that includes the Desmond Elliott Prize, which we announced the long list for this uh, last week. And Laura's in conversation with Stephanie Scott. So Stephanie is a Singaporean and British writer who was raised in Southeast Asia. We've known of Stephanie for a while because she was selected as one of our Ideas Tap Inspires writers back in 2014. And Ideas Tap is one of our escalator years. So it's our talent development scheme. But for one of the years, uh, rather than being a regional competition, as it were, a programme, it was a national programme. So Stephanie was selected for that and spent a year being mentored um, and working on uh, her writing with us. Since then, she's won the A.M. Heath Prize, the Jerwood Arvon Prize for prose fiction, and was a runner-up for the Bridport Prize, Peggy Chapman Andrews Award. What's Left of Me is Yours is her first novel, and it's out next week. I haven't read it yet, but apparently it's a gripping story set in modern-day Tokyo and inspired by a true crime, which sounds absolutely up my alley. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, no, Listening to Laura's interview, I was thinking, this sounds like Steph's kind of book. This sounds like a Steph book, yes. <laughs> yes, and it's, it's getting very good advanced word from people who have read it. Yeah, in the interview, Stephanie talks a lot about her approach to research and figuring out how much of the facts to retain and how much to fictionalise, because it is based on some true crime, but her version of the story is very much her own and figuring out that balance mm. and how she went about kind of doing the right amount of research is really, really fascinating. And, and I think something else we can all appreciate is Stephanie talks about how if she'd realised at the start of the project what the scale of the project would have been and how much work mm. it was going to take, that she probably would never have done it in the first place and that actually approaching things one step at a time and, and not being too overwhelmed by the gigantic nature of what it is you're trying to do is is a way of getting past that. So you actually you end up doing something that would be impossible if you understood it fully from the start. I feel like that uh, is a great representation of life in general at the moment not thinking too much about the, the really big picture and taking each day as it comes. Exactly, yes, one step at a time. And then before you know it, you're out the other side. Okay, so here is Laura talking with Stephanie. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Laura. <laughs> so the story of the book is that it's being published um, in 2020 and has won a number of prizes Um in its various draft forms. Mm -hmm. um, but the final novel, obviously, has a long life that goes before it. So I wanted to yes. ask you how it developed, where it's come from, 
um, when you first started writing it mm-hmm. and what is the beginning of the life of this novel? Yes, What's Left of Me is Yours has had a long period of gestation. Um, it's inspired by a real case, um, a real crime that occurred in Tokyo in 2010. And so I first read an, a newspaper article about that crime in 2010 and, and, uh, and started thinking about whether I could write the novel. Um, it was... Uh, it was about a, um, a Japanese marriage breakup agent um, who had murdered his target. And just, just for background, um, the Japanese have an at-fault divorce system. So if you want to divorce your spouse, but you want custody of your kids or a greater portion of your financial assets, you can hire someone to seduce your partner and provide you with grounds for divorce. Um, so in, in, in the real case, this Wakare um agent, married breakup agent, had fallen in love with his target and killed her. And I wondered um, I wondered if I could uh, write a story about that and mm. if I could take it on. Um, you know, it's the novel is set in Japan with an entirely Japanese cast. So it was a lot, a lot to embark upon. Um, and I did so very slowly. <laughs> um, I, I wrote a sample story version of it. Um, I got a place on the Faber novel course. Um, and I also got a place on the Oxford Creative Writing Masters, which um, is part-time, so you can work. And I did that over two years. And um, and they cover um, poetry, screenwriting, playwriting, um, and prose. Um, and you have to do all three. So um, it was a really oh. great time to... Um, I hadn't done much writing before, really. So it was a great time to develop as a writer and experiment and do lots of different things. Um, and then the novel was just in the background, sort of growing into an idea um, slowly. And um, So were the yeah. other forms of writing, mm. did you ever use the story of the novel and kind of try and translate them to script or to... You know, or did, oh. was it always just going to be a prose? That's a way really, of that's a really good question. It it was always going to be um, a novel. You knew it was um, a novel, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting that you say that because when I um, when I sent it out to uh, beta readers just before I submitted to agents, um, one of them actually asked me if I'd written it as a screenplay because there is a great deal oh. of dialogue in there and, mm. and it is very filmic. Um, and I think that must have been just very much influenced by my training at Oxford Night. I love dialogue anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tend to see most things as films, but, um, mm-hmm. but it was wonderful because this beta reader was talking about how she saw, um, uh, various characters, um, and, and could just, envisaged them completely so that see the was, scenes yeah she yeah. could yeah she's mm. in fact she said something like well when I was watching Kaitara <laughs> oh. like, actually and then she was like sorry I read him I know this <laughs> but um it's so that was like a visual memory that goes on when we read books isn't there that, yes. that often yeah you don't you, you're not that memory isn't of the words on the page and no. um, always no Sometimes, no but of the but, images in your mind yeah, and yeah. the feel and then the sound of the language and everything mm. comes together so yes and I mean when I was when I was doing um my creative writing masters I also applied for various um anthropological grants and mm-hmm. awards which I was lucky enough to win and they funded trips to Japan and then I went out to Japan and started to think in a serious way can you do this? Um, I'm, I'm actually, could I do this? Um, I'm really glad that I didn't 
focus too much on the enormity of the project at its outset that I ah, just that I just went step by step slowly slowly you know is is this feasible um you know can I can I do the research can I fund the research is there agent interest I just did that step by step and I'm really glad that I did that because um in hindsight um it's absolutely deranged <laughs> It's a big project. It's a really big project. Totally mad. So you didn't see it as a whole. You didn't look at the book as being like a whole project in terms of all of the bits that you needed to know. Like exactly, you just thought, well, okay, what do I need to write this bit? Yeah, it's okay. And I just yeah thought, what is what is the heart of the story? What interests me? What would these characters be doing? And I did the research Mm. very gradually, and actually never stopped researching. And um, I mean, I'm half Singaporean and I grew up in Singapore and mm. actually my grandparents um, lived in Singapore during the Japanese occupation in the Second World War. Okay. So they were both fluent in Japanese and mm. um, and my Singaporean grandmother was a lawyer and she had a number of Japanese clients. So I grew up um, mm. really surrounded by and reminded of Japanese culture constantly. But I mean, just, you know, just to have that family background, it still doesn't mean that you know anything meaningful um, so <laughs> still like a huge mountain of research to climb but I mean but I did feel there are there are a number of similarities between Tokyo in um in the 90s where part of the novel is set and Singapore in the 90s when I was growing up in the mm. education systems mm. and so I, I felt that there was a bridge I felt it was it was reasonable yeah um but I'm really glad that I didn't I didn't look at the enormity of it um, at that time, I mean, I think my um, my editor at Weidenfeld, um, when when she read it, said that what she loved about the novel was its ambition, and I'm very glad that I was not, I did not fully um, look at that because <laughs> when I was writing it, or I or I might not have achieved it. Actually, it would have been too daunting. It's really interesting. I think that um, struggle between uh, research um, because this story is so um deep inside a factual event yes what how much unpicking of that did you have to do did you want to completely fictionalize those Mm. characters that world so the facts of what happened had happened but the actual circumstances which they happened were entirely of your own world building is that how it absolutely yes and and actually um I took the kernel of the story so what interested me about the real case was that the um the Wakare Saseya the marriage breakup agent um killed his lover and he claimed that he loved her as he was arrested and taken away he said but I love I love her I love her still Mm. and I um was newly married and I wondered I wondered if that was true I wondered if you could love someone and kill them mm-hmm. and I was thinking about love and the kind of things that you that we do for love um and do to each other for love mm-hmm. and, and that's really where the novel began but mm-hmm. um you know the story is very different from the real case mm-hmm. and I changed I changed everything I I changed the characters I moved the whole story back in time I mm. um I created a, a protagonist um a, a daughter Sumiko who whose mother is murdered and she grows up never knowing how her mother died and and that was another thing that struck me with the with the real case in that there were actually 
children everywhere on both sides. The marriage breakup agent had children, mm. the victim had children, there were loads of children. Um, but no one focused on the children or wondered what happened to right. them. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was they were both dismissed by the press and then mm. probably also consciously kept out of the press. Um, yes. But but I did wonder if that had happened to you in in Japan at that time, how would you be raised? Mm-hmm. And how would you grow up? And how would your family cope with it? And so that, so, was, that was a part of the story that you completely breathed life into because totally. there, was really, there was really nothing. There was nothing no there. No document no. To, to kind of refer to. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, yes, I, so, I, so I created Simiko, who is this yeah. entirely fictional um, narrator. And she, um, she effectively goes back in time and, and discovers what, what really happened to her mother, Rena. Mm. Um, and so that's how the two storylines mm. met. Um, but yes, and then also I um, very self-indulgently um, chose uh, locations in the novel where I wanted to be and um, <laughs> where I wanted to go that interested me. I love the sea. I love the Japanese coast. Um, there are aspects of it that are really um beautiful but also isolated and wild and um and I ended up spending some time down there by myself and and um people are incredibly welcoming you end up I think as a novelist doing all sorts of really strange and 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 outrageous research and um (laughs) I don't necessarily recommend everybody do this but you end up um what I ended up doing in in Japan um was just getting into cars with loads of people I didn't know. Um, <laughs> um, but they were all really nice. And um, like there, there are very few tour guides in these areas. And so what happens is that the local community offer a sort of guiding service and you can email them and say, hi, I would like to come and see your town or I'd like to spend some time with you. Can you show me the local shrines? Can you, you know, can we go and see um, the flowers that are in bloom? Can we, can we do this and that? And they're actually just so excited to do that with you. And so I'm generous and I was invited into people's homes. Wow. A wonderful woman made me pancakes. Um <laughs> So it, it's it's great. It's a real <laughs> it's, community connection. It is not, it, yeah, truly, it truly, yeah, and and all these people um, are in my acknowledgments, and I was really yeah. struck by their generosity and and excitement about the novel, and and how kind they were to me because I was just a strange, a strange, <laughs> very strange girl <laughs> who was writing a book. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure they were just as interested in you as actually yeah. as, as as you were in them as well. Um, so, would you say that you needed to that you needed you needed that in order Definitely. to write the book? You needed to go out to Japan and do yes. that research in person in yes. these communities. Absolutely, yeah. definitely. And actually, um, the research that I did in Japan, there's a great deal of Japanese lore in the book. Um, mm. I spent. A, a large amount of time with um, Japanese lawyers, prosecutors, and defense attorneys in Japan. Um, and the research I, well, the facts that I uncovered there were just absolutely essential. They, they changed really key elements of the plot, how I was going to approach the story. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that I did that amount of research early when the book was still flexible and, and, you know, yes, and easily, yeah. you know, still very much information um, because it meant that I could make uh, 
I could make big changes as to how characters encountered information mm. and, and what they were looking at. So. How did you make those approaches research-wise? Did you yeah. have contacts or did you have to go out blind and sort of... Um, a, a lot of it is blind. Um, okay. A lot of it is. Um, I'm very fortunate to have um, wonderful Japanese friends, and um, and so they sort of <laughs> reached out to family members who reached out to contacts. Okay. Um, sometimes you do a lot of cold calling. Um, I actually approached the Japanese embassy in London, and um, and they have been truly wonderful um, throughout the book. Um, their uh, their legal attaches. Um, have have supported me for years actually and and wow. we go for lunch and even now and um they were just so helpful in answering all of my questions and um and their interest in support of the novel was was really lovely that's wonderful actually I mean, that's you know incredibly generous and and all of that needed to happen sort of early on in the yes. life of the book I'm guessing because mm what you know directly impacts what happens to the characters um so but also you also kind of you've described it that you kind of felt your way as you went and and didn't look at it as this huge kind of daunting yeah project but actually looked at the story and kept kept in the story um what else did you need as a writer to write this book and also I'm interested in the space as well the space Mm. that you write in yeah. Um because we were talking earlier on actually and you were you were talking about your um Singaporean side of the family and yes. um, inviting you to kind of go over to Singapore and actually yeah. you feel that there's space that you need in which to write that yeah. wouldn't work out in Singapore and I'm quite interested yes. in how Well there's this there's this I think it's myth um that writers can write anywhere that or they that they can travel and write and surely you can just pick up your laptop. I'm sure some people can. Mm. Um and they are very fortunate and gifted. Um I need <laughs> my desk. Um I have a little study at home and um and actually a really beautiful desk that um that my some of my best friends bought me for a wedding present, and oh, I <laughs> set up my computer there. And it's a um, great wedding present. <laughs> yeah, I know it was wonderful. Actually, they were they were like, "What should we get you? Do you want a tea set?" And I was like, "No, I want a dance." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that, that's it. But it's really lovely. It, um, it, it's beautiful, and uh, I'm surrounded by my books, and I can have mm. them in piles around me, and um, and I can just. I can just descend into the writing and that's very much how it feels that you descend into your writing world and everything else fades away and so I need to be sort of stationary and happy and safe and I need to know where I am and have everything I need around me yeah. to do that. So Was it hard to carve out, carve out time? Um, you've um, obviously worked alongside yes. your MA, mm-hmm. um, you spent a number of years, I think, drafting the book. Yes, definitely. Um, and that you know, other things happened in the middle of yeah. drafting the book. Mm-hmm. So, was it difficult to find that space and time? And how how did your kind yeah. of, I suppose your your uh, your commitment to it did it mm-hmm. did it have to slide around? Oh, um, yes, very much so. So, actually, um, although my degrees are in literature and literature is my first love um I worked in investment banking for a time it is extremely difficult right Mm. in investment banking um almost almost impossible really um but I 
I went into banking because I realized that I would need income to live, obviously, but also that if I ever wanted to write in the future, I would need um, I would need a financial safety net yeah. with which to do that. Um, and I actually I left a PhD in Renaissance literature to go into investment banking. Oh wow! <laughs> so it was yeah, it was an it was an enormous leap. I think I think they were surprised um, when I when I was interviewed. I think they were, all the panels were quite confused. Um, but um, but uh, but yes, I, so I wanted I wanted to give myself um, a safety net and and a financial cushion. Um, so I worked for a time and then actually um, I left finance altogether and I used the money that I had earned there to fund um, the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gave me, I think this was when I, this was when I did the majority of the draft. This is when I, um, you know, applied for the anthropological grants and went on the research trips and truly like pushed out, I think, the majority of the book mm. um, by ring fencing a couple of years where I just where I could just write um so yes and then I mean that was you know life will always intervene um and uh you know so I just was coming to the end of my first draft um everything looked great everything was really positive um I'd just won and been part of the Writers Centre Norwich Ideas Tap Award which was Mm -hmm. absolutely wonderful um and everything seemed to be coming together and then my life just sort of exploded um and my husband and I went through um a couple of years of really intense family trauma mm-hmm. um and in that time as well my my mother nearly died and she's the most important person in my life so that was that was traumatic and I literally had to step away from writing for a couple of years okay. at least mm-hmm. and um and I didn't touch the novel in that time Okay. Having gotten to the end of a first draft, I, I then just, um, I mean, I know people say you should have breathing space with your work and you definitely should, but um, I felt that was quite extreme, stepping away for, for that amount of time. Um, but uh, luckily things quietened down again. I felt I was able to return to the book. Mm. Um, and, uh, and also that I really had to finish it by that point. Okay, so you'd kind of made a, made a contract with yourself that you wanted yes. to get this book finished. Absolutely, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Um, and after that hiatus, I just, I felt it so keenly that if I, you know, if I was ever going to finish this novel, it had to be mm. now and it had, it had to be done. And so, um, and so I did, I took a number of, of, of months to, um, to redraft it and and finish it and um and then I entered it for the Bridport First Novel Award yes. and um it won runner up which was just a fantastic boost to my confidence because yes. I, I really had fallen off the world and out of this writing life that I loved so much so to be able to return to it was was really fantastic and to have that kind of encouragement when I did return was was really meaningful um and then I submitted the novel to agents. Um, and I'm very, very pleased to say that um, the agents were, were absolutely lovely. And many of them had expressed interest in, in the novel and me um, much earlier in my career, before I'd finished writing it. And, um, 
And they were, even after all my time away, they were still there at the end. They were still interested, still waiting. Um, I think there is this sense with um, with uh, writers starting out um, that opportunities need to be grabbed whilst, yes. they're, whilst mm. they're available. Yeah. And I think sometimes that is true. Mm. Um, and sometimes that's a good thing because it pushes you to perhaps take, take risks that you mm. wouldn't ordinarily take. Um, but I think something that I, you know, have spoken so much to writers about is the, particularly around agents actually, because mm. it's a very important relationship that um, it's it's okay to go slow yeah. and to go at your pace, and if perhaps the agent is right for you and for your your mm-hmm. book, um, that that will happen. Yeah, and it just that's really interesting that there was a number of years between initial conversations with yeah. particular agents and then actually you signing and being yes. represented by the agent who then sold your book on. Yeah, absolutely, and and actually, I mean, because I did the Faber Novel course and they have. Um, it's a really wonderful course. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, and they have a showcase at the end where you do read and present your work to agents in London. And um, and that is really great. Um, after that event, that showcase, I received a lot of interest. But I mean, I hadn't written very much of the book at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, so I, I had an idea, I had a plan, I had lots of hopes, mm-hmm. um, but but those agents literally stayed with me for years and they would just check in every year and be like, hi, Steph, are you ready? No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a sort of, I guess it's like a sort of endurance test. Those who stay with you are the ones you want to you work with, but actually they were, they were all really 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 lovely and um and I wanted to I guess there were two things that were foremost in my mind the first was that I wanted to do the book myself I think with the first novel you're teaching yourself how to write Mm. a novel but I wanted to do that um on my own and I wanted to to shape the book as I felt it needed to be shaped and um and and not not work with an agent beforehand in the drafting, um, and that was just a personal preference. It was just a personal choice. It probably took me much longer, but I just wanted to do it on my own, and I learned so much in that. Um, and then the second thing is that I wanted the book to be absolutely ready by the time it went out, and that is something that people at Faber um, were really emphatic about. They they said, um, you know. We don't actually care if a novel has taken five years or ten years. We prefer you to take that time as long as when it comes in, it is ready. Yes. Um, and I might have taken that to an extreme, but I, um, but I really wanted the novel to be as as good as it could be, and I wanted to do it by myself, um, and then send it to agents. And I'm very glad I did because. Um, I, I did get a number of offers from agents, um, which was lovely. Um, but everyone wanted to do something slightly different with the novel. Um, they yeah. all had different ideas and angles and plans. And um, the, my agent, the one I, I'm with now, he, um, he actually phoned and offered to represent me within 24 hours of reading the manuscript. And he, he just got it. Mm. He got it entirely. In, in every way. So did you, you really were going on your instincts? Yes. In that 
conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, he wasn't, um, he wasn't the, the biggest, the shiniest, the most powerful or, or anything, actually. He, but he was the agent that I connected with most. Yeah. And he was the agent who understood the book. Um, and when it, and he allowed me to edit it as well before we went, sent it out on submission. He had to pry it out of my hands in the end. <laughs> but, but when he did send it out on submission, um, on the afternoon that he did, he sent me this lovely email, which just said, Steph, whatever happens, I want you to know that I'm a thousand percent behind you and what's left of me is yours. And you really need that. And he has been outstanding. So that fit is just such an important... So important. So what would your, I suppose, what would your takeaway advice be mm. from that for any writer yes. at that point of having beginning a conversation with an agent? What, yeah. what would you say to those writers? Um, take your time. Mm-hmm. Um, try to hold your nerve in the meetings. I, I, very re- I very nearly chose the wrong agent. I really did. Very, very nearly chose the wrong agent because I was dazzled by the the bright lights and, um, you know, everything that uh, they can purportedly do for you. And and that agent, the one I nearly went with, is is absolutely wonderful. Um, But just, we just had different views on the book. And I'm very glad that I stuck with my guns and went with my gut. Um, And I guess that is what I would say to you. People say that meeting your agent is like, falling in love or you just know and I found these I found these things very frustrating before I <laughs> before I chose my agent mm-hmm. I mean it is sadly true actually your in, your in, mm-hmm. you do know your instincts know mm-hmm. um so I would be I would know your book and know what you want to do with your book be be sure of your vision it is your work um and you know it best so so listen to that and listen to your inner voice when you're meeting with people and um, stand your ground and try not to be swayed, which is easier said than done. <laughs> That's brilliant advice. Thank you very much, Stephanie School. Um, Stephanie's book, What's Left of Me is Yours, is published uh, next April uh, 2020. And best of luck with the book. Thank you very much for coming to see us here today at the National Centre for Writing. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for listening and thanks to Stephanie. Before we go, we just wanted to shout out to a couple of cool projects we have going on at the moment. So our Writers Toolkit Online courses are up and running. There's three free courses to get you started. There's a productivity course from Ben Johncock, a science fiction world building course from Ian Netterton, which is very much my thing. And uh, we also have a course which is about knowing your publishing paths, which is intended to help people know what options are out there for getting your work published and to help people avoid some of the pitfalls and potentially dubious routes that you can sometimes go down if you're completely new to this kind of thing. Uh, We also have creative writing online courses, which are fully tutored 12 or 24 week courses. Uh, They are beginning on the 4th of May, so there are still some places available. Uh, Details on all of these can be found at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk.
We also have our new weekly bibliotherapy blog, which is my new favourite thing, with Peggy Hughes, our programme director. So every week, Peggy is attempting to address your bibliotherapy needs with a handful of book recommendations. So send us a, a request, whether it's a book on a specific genre or a theme or a certain age range for young children. You can send us those requests to uh, info at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk or get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And we will send your request through to Peggy and each week she will be publishing her responses. Peggy talks about theatre. She talks about books that tackle cooking and food, sports and also dystopian adventure. So a whole range there. Peggy's just such a great vessel of knowledge, really, when it comes to book recommendations. She reads so many books. She knows so many writers. She can pluck some really great recommendations just out of thin air. Yeah, and if you missed last week's podcast episode, do have a listen to that because Peggy was on talking about some of the books that she's been picking out. Also now up on the website is a new free course for young writers. Uh, We have two versions of it, one for 9 to 12-year-olds and one for 13 to 17-year-olds. And it's all about writing lyrics. So if you have a young person who is interested in creating their own songs and writing them, do check it out. It's being run by Jess Morgan, and you can sign up now. To find it, go to the website and head over to the Young People area where you will find our young people's workshops. There's more coming from that area as well. So do keep an eye out for future courses. And don't forget to sign up to our newsletter. We're sending out lots of new opportunities, activities, courses, writing tips, podcast episodes, just about anything you can think of to do with writing and reading. So do head over to the website and sign up. Yes, nice click. Sorry, I didn't I didn't realise that I'd done that. We'll leave it in because it was exciting. I was doing like the Fonz. The Fonz? I was thinking, is it the Fonz or Fozzy? But that's Fozzy Bear. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I am basically Fozzy Bear. And we do know that you are getting a million newsletters from every organisation on the planet at the moment, but we do try very hard to make sure that our one is full of genuinely useful stuff and a lot of great free stuff as well. Ours is the best. <laughs> yes. If you'd like to send in your bibliotherapy request to Peggy or indeed ask us about anything else, as long as it's related to writing and stuff that we do. Nothing weird. No, nothing weird, please. Uh, that can go to Steph's other podcast. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can check out our Facebook page and you can sign up to the newsletter and find out about everything we're doing on our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find it. Thanks again, keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Review and subscribe. Oh, my singing voice is gone. (laughs) I don't know where that's gone. It's worse than it ever was before.